Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 4.6 billion. The Earth Forms. Cambrian, 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic, 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary, 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs, 55 million. Primates appear, 2.3 million. Pleistocene, 200,000. Humans, 20,000. Agricultural, 250. Industrial revolution, Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Miles Traer. In the past several years, a growing community of people have been interested in reforming our food system. Agricultural practices and food consumerism are focal points for understanding broader environmental problems. And one of the reasons many people are so inspired to get involved in the food system is that we all have some agency and power. Every day, each of us make choices about food that, over time, add up to have a big impact. But what actually goes into that decision-making process? Today, we're going to explore this question in greater detail. How were conscientious, environmentally-minded food consumers influenced in ways that we might not be aware of? Our first story is about what's driving one of the fastest-growing food segments in America, organics. Here's producer Mike Osborne. According to Gallup, in 2014, around 45% of Americans included organic in their diet. What were they thinking? I mean that literally. What were consumers thinking when they saw the organic label? What does it actually mean for a product to be organic, and how is that different from the values we associate with the organic label? Phil Howard studies food and agriculture at Michigan State University, and according to him, many of the ideals that originally defined the term organic have been lost as organic has gone mainstream. The early ideals were, were pretty diverse. Farmers who were interested in the health of humans, but tied to the health of the soil and reducing the environmental impacts of conventional agriculture, things like synthetic pesticides, having a more local food supply. Since the USDA took over organic in 2002, there's one uniform standard now, and a lot of those ideals have kind of fallen by the wayside, and it's become more of a, you know, avoiding synthetic pesticides, avoiding synthetic fertilizers. In a lot of ways, the USDA organic label is a success story. The market for organic in the U.S. is still relatively small, about 5%, but that number totally misses the bigger picture. 
In terms of the rate of growth, organic's rise has been meteoric. And one of the reasons it's considered such a success, especially for marketers, is that the label means you can charge more. There's a price premium, and it varies depending on the product. Um, you know, it's, it's usually around 20% higher than a similar product that's not organic. But as the market for organic has grown, the interpretation of the label has become fuzzier. Organic means that the regulations surrounding pesticide and fertilizer use are fairly strict. But a lot of the other values consumers associate with organic don't map to reality. For example, people tend to link organic with local. But most of the organic labels are under the umbrella of large companies that are sourcing food from all over the world. Most of the, the brands that you're familiar with have been acquired by big multinational corporations. The marketing is deliberately designed to appeal to the people who, who are uh, thinking of those pioneering organic farms that were very small. You know, you look at the pastoral imagery on a lot of these organic brands, Cascadian Farms, for example, their logo is the image of that first farm that they started in Washington State, even though they're now sourcing from China and Latin America and all over the world. Another value that we tend to project onto organic is that we think it's healthier, more nutritious. Now, there's still a lot of scientific debate about this, and it varies from product to product. But that hasn't stopped advertisers from promoting the perceived health benefits. Well over 80% of uh, people in the U.S. buy organic foods at least occasionally. Uh, most of them will say that, that one of their motivations is health. The marketing, again, kind of, you know, you see people of pictures of very healthy people, even though the science on the health impacts of organic foods is, is not as clear. So without coming right out and saying there are health benefits to organic, the marketers kind of appeal to that desire. While there may be disconnects between what consumers think they're buying and what they're actually buying, maybe this isn't an altogether bad thing. Think about it. If there were a label for every social value we want from our food, this could create a lot of confusion in the grocery stores. There will always be consumers who are searching for a way to uh, implement their ideals, to search out organic, um, not just organic, but local and, and fair labor practices. And so there are some alternative labels that can either be complementary to organic, you can have an organic label and a fair trade certified label, or it can be a completely different alternative. Um, so I think there are going to be more options in the marketplace. Uh, certified humane, for example, there are some humane standards in the organic label, but for consumers who are looking for more, there are three different humane certifications in the U.S. that are becoming more and more popular. Every time we head to the grocery store or go out to eat, there's lots of factors that play into our decisions. How expensive is it? What are the Yelp ratings? Is it tasty? Environmental values can get lost in the shuffle. The organic label can get us partway there, but it may not be checking off all the boxes you most care about. The organic label is a partial and perhaps imperfect guide to our food decisions. But what about other influences that are even more subtle? It turns out that a lot of what shapes our decision-making about food happens at the subconscious level. Where we eat and with whom, how much food is put in front of us, and the intense branding of so much of our food can have huge influences over our diets. 
As producer Leslie Chang explores in our next story, the social and environmental context in which we eat are increasingly leading us to overeat. This is driving one of the biggest health crises of this generation, the obesity epidemic. Let's pretend for a second that you're a public health expert and you really want to do something about the growing obesity problem. Before making any moves, you want as much information as you can possibly get. The hope is that, armed with knowledge, you'll be able to convince people to make healthier choices. So to collect all this info, you walk into a doctor's office and you say, Okay, Doc, I want all the data. Go get your obesity textbook and just hit me over the head with all the information. What are the risks of being overweight? You might hear something like this. Increased risks of heart disease and stroke from high blood pressure, uh, elevated cholesterol levels, abnormal lipid levels, type 2 diabetes. One in three of today's children will have diabetes in their lifetime. In terms of the gastrointestinal system, you have things like increased risk of gallstones and a problem called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which causes a cirrhosis uh, of the liver. In terms of the, the brain and central nervous system, in addition to the risk of stroke, there are more memory problems and dementias. The lungs and breathing, more asthma, a uh, problem called obstructive sleep apnea. Orthopedic problems are very common, including osteoarthritis, which is, is more, occurs more and more as you get older. General urinary problems, such as kidney disease, kidney insufficiency, kidney failure, more things like skin rashes, um, psychiatric problems like increased risk of depression, disordered eating behaviors, eating disorders, and even cancer is something that isn't really, I don't think, in the general public's awareness yet, but obesity is a major risk factor for cancer, particularly um, prostate, uterine, cervical cancer, ovarian cancer, colon cancer, kidney cancer, and breast cancer. That was Dr. Thomas Robinson, professor of medicine at Stanford. Like many experts in public health, he's deeply concerned about the growing obesity epidemic. And just to be clear, it is no exaggeration to call this an epidemic. Right now, about half of children are overweight or obese, and about two-thirds of adults, more than two-thirds of adults in the U.S., are overweight or obese. And that's spreading all over the world. And that's why we're seeing obesity emerge throughout the world, not just in developed countries, but also developing countries. Some of the fastest rates of increase in obesity are occurring in China and India. The obesity epidemic is one of the great paradoxes of our global food system. While hundreds of millions of people are undernourished, there are actually more people in the world who are overweight or obese. One of the problems, of course, is that we're surrounded by a lot of junk food. As we all know, humans are biologically programmed to love sweet and fatty foods. But Robinson is more interested in studying the non-biological factors. He wants to understand the nudges and the context surrounding our food decisions. It turns out that the genetic and, and biological aspects are probably less important in determining whether individuals or as a society we've become overweight. One thing we've noticed is that the increase in weight across our populations in the U.S., but also worldwide, has come so rapidly that that can't be accounted for any change in the genes or our biology. What it is is an interaction between the genes and the biology that we have and the world that we've created. And we create changes in our world around us and that influence our behavior much more rapidly 
And that's why we've seen this rapid rise in obesity. Our daily food choices are shaped by a lot of factors. The environment we eat in matters. The built environment matters. We walk less when we drive more. We eat more processed food because frozen pizzas are readily available and cheap. We sit in front of screens for longer hours because there's Netflix autoplay and infinite cat videos. All of this is the backdrop for where and how we eat. In his research, Robinson tries to isolate some of these contextual factors. For example, he's looked at the effect of screen time. So there's there's four reasons why um, we think about screen time and the obesity epidemic. The first one is is sort of obvious, that if you're in front of a screen, you're not being more physically active. So it displaces physical activity. Anytime you're in front of a screen, you're not being more active. The second one is the effects of advertising. The third is that uh, we spend a lot of time eating in front of screens. It turns out that that's probably, in our estimation, the number one link between uh, obesity and screen time is that when you're distracted by a screen while you're eating, you don't pay attention to the normal satiety signals. You don't know when you're full. Then the the fourth element is sleep. And that screen time, especially screens in children's bedrooms, has a huge impact on their sleep. As Robinson mentioned, advertising is part of the story here. In fact, a few years ago, he published a study where he looked at the effects of advertising on kids ages 3 to 5. And so we chose uh, to use the McDonald's brand for food because it's the one that kids are exposed to the most. And we started with a group of um, over 60 children, and they had uh, two sets of this, of identical food placed in front of them. On one side was on a wrapper, a that had the McDonald's insignia on it. The other was on a wrapper that was the same color, the same material, and just had no McDonald's insignia on it. The kids had either a hamburger, french fries, chicken nuggets, or baby carrots, and then a cup of juice or milk. Again, the two sets of food were identical. The only difference was the McDonald's packaging. We had a person behind a screen who couldn't see any of this, who would point around one side of the screen and say, okay, first I want you to take a bite or a sip of this one. Next, I want you to take a bite or a sip of the other one. Now tell me, do they taste the same or point to one if it tastes better? What we found is that overwhelmingly, children reported that they liked the taste more if they thought the food or drink came from McDonald's, even though they were identical. And they actually tasted these, so they, they in fact altered the children's perceptions of how the food tasted just by thinking that a food came from McDonald's or didn't come from McDonald's, even though they were identical. And so in this way, even as early as, as three to five years of age, um, these children had already been influenced by the marketing or even some of their own exposures to McDonald's in a way that they thought that things tasted better if they came from McDonald's, including baby carrots. And it's not just brands that affect our taste perceptions. For both kids and adults, the presentation of our food matters too. For example, other studies have shown that if you serve someone a meal on a fancy plate versus on a TV dinner tray, they overwhelmingly say the fancy plate meal tastes better, even when the food is exactly the same. Presentation can also affect the amount of food we eat. In fact, we did studies where we, we found out that if you added a rim to a plate, so it's the same diameter, but you add a rim to a plate, people perceive the food on that plate to be an extra 10% larger in terms of surface area. And it goes back to 
you know, that old adage of whether you eat with your, your eyes or your stomach, in fact, a lot of what we eat is with our eyes. And so how much we eat, if we perceive there to be more food on the plate than there is, we'll, we'll eat less because we, we eat based on, you know, that what, what is seen to be a normal portion. At the end of the day, though, Robinson wants his research to improve behavior, and he's on the hunt for what he calls stealth interventions. Instead of telling patients to change behavior because it's bad for them, stealth interventions incentivize a different set of behaviors. For example, with overweight kids, Robinson has organized dance classes and sports leagues. But he's also advocating more ambitious ideas, pedestrian-friendly neighborhoods, more bike pathways, and in general, designing our built environment to help us be more active. The point is to steer us away from all the things that have inadvertently nudged us towards unhealthy eating. In fact, the bigger message from Robinson's work is that if we're intentional about it, we can build an environment for eating that encourages health and sustainability. And our behaviors are driven by our, our social and environmental exposures. And that's what drives a good proportion of why we do what we do, even if we don't understand it ourselves. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Traer. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at GenAnthropocene. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Is it tasty? Is it tasty? Is it tasty? Is it tasty? <laughs> <laughs> Such a good word.